Welcome to the Fix Your Gut Podcast. My name is Jason Hooper, and as always, we're here with John Brissom. Hope everybody's doing well today. Today, we're going to be talking about Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the uh, hypotheses for the causes and um, some things that you can do to possibly prevent that. And if you uh, are susceptible to Alzheimer's, you know, through your genetics or something, you know, maybe we can give you some tips on how to how to make that easier for you. So, um, f- first of all, Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, you know, um, it, and, uh, it's, you know, if, if you've ever known somebody with Alzheimer's, you know, loved one or somebody, it's just, it's just awful to see because their body's still there, but their mind starts to go. And, um, it's probably one of the most ter- terrifying diseases out there. Bill, Bill Gates, I think the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation just, uh, injected a hundred million dollars into Alzheimer's research. And so hopefully we see some. So I guess because of that, it's not going to go anywhere, huh? Bum bum. All right, go ahead, Jason. I don't know. They they almost wiped out polio. I mean, last year. Yeah, I'm pretty uh, sure they. There did. was only three documented cases of polio, I think, and they were like all in Afghanistan. So, um, I don't know. The I think, well, the you know, I I think uh, they're doing some good things. Uh, I disagree politely, but go ahead, Jason. Well, hundred million dollars is quite a bit of cash for research, so. We might be seeing some some innovations. So uh, the, I guess um, the hypothesis that was prevailing for a long time was the amyloid beta uh, precursor proteins, and so I guess basically like what, what um, every everything I guess that we attribute to Alzheimer's or not everything, but um, when we start looking at cause, what happens is. Somebody has Alzheimer's, they pass away, and then they do the autopsy, and we, they start looking at the brain, and they, they see what's there that's not supposed – they start seeing stuff that's there that's not supposed to be, um, like aluminum, um, and, uh, and and we'll talk about that later. But then they start seeing um, like some strange protein buildup like uh, amyloid beta. Amyloid beta is, is a membrane protein. We're not really even sure what it does, um, but – um, with the, uh, the, the amyloid beta protein, it's, it's supposed to like lie in sheets when it's, when it's, when it's in its uh, normal state. But for, uh, but the, the, um, the, it's, 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 it's a 40 protein, it's a 40, um, amino acid, uh, chain peptide. And when, it's encoded incorrectly. It doesn't lie flat anymore. You know, it's got kinks in it, and then it starts to create buildup, and you basically have uh, amyloid plaque in the brain, and that's not good, and that can cut off blood flow and um, and create lots of problems. And so the the theory was that something would happen to change the way um, you 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 uh, transcoded. Um, APP, which is the amyloid precursor protein, and then all of a sudden you'd get a bunch of plaque, and then that would lead to Alzheimer's. Now, there are people listening to this podcast right now that have this this issue, and they, they don't even know it. They don't have any symptoms, and um, they may never, ever have any symptoms. And the treatments that they've had for this, they've developed different medications and different therapies that have uh, targeted 
these genes and they've seen zero uh, benefits to the medication. So they're starting to think that this probably isn't what's causing Alzheimer's. This is probably just, okay, the, we see this happening in, um, in, in Alzheimer's patients, but it, it may not be a cause. It may just be a side effect or something, but uh, the interventions haven't haven't been working and and uh they've done some uh they've also done some some um well it's gone actually it's gone all the way into into phase three trials and all the phase uh, to my knowledge all of the phase three trials right now have been discontinued because they haven't been seeing any results um and so they they've done studies and 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 like um roundworms and stuff you know trying to do knockouts and um and to where they they don't produce any amyloid precursor proteins and see what happens. And it just, it just doesn't seem to have any effect. So that hypothesis is pretty much dead. The next prevailing hypothesis is uh, something called, uh, has to do with something called tau proteins. And it's, it's a similar thing to this uh, APP amyloid precursor proteins to where we've got these uh, proteins that are encoded incorrectly and um, there's either a transcription problem and then all of a sudden they have these weirdly shaped um, structures and they don't function correctly. Now with the tau proteins, we do kind of have an idea about what they do. Um, they tend to work on the axons um, and they're, they're tubular proteins. So they, they help with the transmission of of uh, neurons, right? But one, one thing about amyloid proteins real quick is, isn't it the issue that they're seeing with them being folded similar to pyron proteins? Correct. Yeah. Well, they're supposed to lie flat, right? Um, they're supposed to be beta sheets. Okay. If, if you, okay. So if you don't know anything about proteins, let me, uh, let me try to break this down. So there are different shapes that proteins can make. Um, there can be spirals, there can be sheets, you know, they, uh, depending upon, okay, so you have these amino acids and they're all linked together and that's what a protein is. And each amino acid has a different chemical charge, um, and they can attract each other or repel each other. And that's, uh, it's kind of like magnets. Um, and so they take on certain shapes uh, based on their chemical charge and, you know, some other factors too, whether they're hydrophilic, hydrophobic, there's a lot of different chemical forces that determine the shape of proteins. And these amyloid, be uh, these amyloid beta is supposed to be beta, you know, it's supposed to be these beta sheets, so they're supposed to be flat. And in the middle of the peptide, um, there is a transcription error, or actually the, the, the DNA actually changes uh, entirely, believe it or not. Um, and where you're just making these things every time uh, with one of, one of the amino acids is, uh, is wrong. And so they don't lie flat anymore. They kind of, um, they just coagulate, you know, they just kind of like, I don't know, they're, they're not stacked and organized like they're supposed to be. So um, it's, it's, it, it looked as if that's what the problem with Alzheimer's was. And they tried to target this and they tried to study this more. Everything has led to a dead end. So it's probably not what's going on. So then we start looking at the tau proteins. And the tau proteins, again, they help with the transmission of neurotransmitters. They help, uh, they're like tubular proteins. So they help those things uh, fire correctly and make it to the right place. Um, they're uh, primarily in, 
located in the central nervous system, and and then again we got this uh, we got this issue where um, the tau proteins aren't uh, being transcribed correctly, and um, so now we have the tau hypothesis. So we have this abnormal uh, phosphorylation. Um, you know, you have this you have this uh, enzyme called kinase, which attaches a phosphorus to something and uh, a protein, and and so um, we we have this excessive uh, phosphorylation, and so um, it, what what's happening is that you just get a buildup of a lot of tau, um, and so that's where the research is heading. This way, they're starting to look at this and seeing if these microtubes associated with the tau protein one. Are, are the cause I, uh, you know, as I'm looking at this research, um, and and I have nothing to base this on other than when I look at the amyloid precursor protein research, it looks identical as far as like, oh, we're sure this is the case. We see this um, this change, and you know, we're going to start making medications to regulate it, and like everything's looks like it's pointing this direction. But I think once they start the trials, they're going to figure out that. This is also not um, going to do anything um, as far as, you know, whatever they do as far as alternative splicing or whatever. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they can start manipulating the uh, the gene, which is on chromosome 17. They start playing around with it, and they're probably going to find that it's, it's, it's like um, it, it is a result of somebody having Alzheimer's, but it's not – the necessarily the cause of Alzheimer's. It, it did. It did uh, through this research, though. It's not com a complete waste because um, as they were looking at, um, they're, they're saying like, why are these genes not functioning correctly? Like all of a sudden, you have a gene that just completely changes. It's encoding a, a different protein than it was before. How does that happen? That that's kind of weird. And then we started looking at viruses, and, and then we said, well, could have you get some kind of a virus? that comes in and changes the way, um, you know, it, it basically, it changes a, a gene entirely. Uh, and, and so th that's interesting research. And um, I'm curious to see where that leads. No, I could talk about that, Jason. That's what I was going to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah. I mean, with um, one, one more stat uh, before I let you go okay. is, is that uh, th there's an interesting correlation between Alzheimer's and herpes simplex one. Um, which is a virus you know, that I think something like half the population has by the time they're thirty or something. I don't I don't know the exact stat on that, but a lot of people have it, and there is a high correlation between people that have herpes simplex one and people that have Alzheimer's. So it's maybe somehow that virus is um, affecting the way those are somehow changing those genes to where they're transcribing different proteins. We don't really know, but. Um, I'll let you talk about. Well, we do know there's a lot of studies now that are showing that to be the case. Yeah. Um, so they've looked at uh, herpes simplex one um, as possibly being a cause of Alzheimer's disease, uh, even as far back as the 1980s, and they couldn't at first prove that viral infections, uh, specifically H uh, herpes simplex one, um, was or the herpes viridae virus. Uh, we're able to cross the blood-brain barrier and cause uh, latent uh, viral infections of the brain. 
Uh, but that was later discovered in 1991 when many elderly people actually had a very high amount of herpes simplex 1 uh, DNA uh, within their brains. Um, and so usually the herpes simplex virus, like any herpes veridae virus, you don't get rid of it. It's not like the cold, you know, the common cold, your, your, your immune system uh, uh, defeats the rhinovirus within a week or so, and you're over it and you're fine. Uh, herpes veridae viruses, majority of them, uh, uh, once the, the body inactivates them, um, they lie dormant within the cranial nerve uh, system, um, mainly the trigeminal nerve uh, for majority of them. Uh, where they lie dormant there, and they become reactivated when the immune system is not able to keep them in check. Over time, sometimes it could be a period of stress. Sometimes it can be you get in a car accident and physical stress. Some medications that uh, damper immune function can also cause it as well. So with all with you know with the reactivation of these viruses, um, when they don't lay dormant, they tend to they can travel up the vagus nerve, and if the blood brain barrier is weakened as it does as you get older, um, it's able to cross into the brain brain and it can lie dormant. Um, so there, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, real quick of just a little few lines from uh, a paper on it uh, that was published in 2014. Um, Active HSV-1 infection causes severe damage and usually leads to cell death. It was therefore suggested that HSV-1 might periodically reactivate in the brain during episodes of stress, immunosuppression, or inflammation, causing cumulative, through though unnecessary, limited, and localized damage, which is greater in APOE4 characters, which we'll talk about APOE later, uh, leading eventually to the development of Alzheimer's disease. Reactivation events have long been known to occur in the peripheral nervous system where HSV-1 resides lifelong in the trigeminal ganglia. Uh, they cause avert damage in the form of cold sores and some 20 to 40% of those affected, while others remain asymptomatic, an enigma solved by the work in, uh, in the author's laboratory. So it appears that like most quote-unquote autoimmune conditions where the body just decides to attack itself, or in the case of Alzheimer's disease where epigenetic changes are seen on the genetic level by said virus, uh, most of your autoimmune conditions are triggered by some sort of pathogen. And in this case, it would be that um, Alzheimer's disease is a, re a, a current reactivation of herpes simplex 1 within the brain, similar to how schizophrenia is caused by T. gondii within the brain, a latent infection as well. Uh, that so you got anything to add to that Jason? Uh, yeah so or anything what they're finding in the brain is is the rna of of, of the of the viruses and you know it, it's like i said you know you look at the autopsy and you're like oh this this is here this might not uh supposed to be here um but that doesn't mean that's what it, it's necessarily causing it um because look Check this out. Like, like I said, you're also finding you're also finding a high amount of them within the amyloid plaques and tau mm. plaques as well, too. As well, I want to make note of that. Sure, absolutely. Like, look, with with APP, like I said, there's people right now listening to this that have APP. Don't freak out and be like, ah, oh, I'm gonna get Alzheimer's. Not necessarily. Okay, there's people right now listening to this that have herpes simplex one, and try getting rid of that. Good luck. Well, you can't, but you can inactivate it. Like if you have herpes simplex 1 and APO4, mm -hmm. you probably want to do your best to make sure that herpes, you know, verity reactivation rarely ever occurs. Right. Um, 
So I guess get on your Valtrex. Uh, <laughs> or, or have a, you know, get proper sunlight exposure for vitamin D production as well as a, a, a heavy light, a heavier lysine, low arginine diet combined with the supplement PQQ. But we'll talk more about that later. Yeah. Yeah. The amino acid. Yeah. The, uh, it seems that the herpes virus does really well with a lot of, uh, of uh, arginine, right? And then uh, it seems to not do so well with a high concentration of lysine. Yes. Um, and so there seems to be some dietary ways to, to control it. But I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that um, you've got all these things, but you know, you've, got, you've got babies that have uh, herpes simplex one. I don't really know how that happens. I guess like, like if you've got herpes, like don't kiss your baby on the mouth. Like, why would you do that? I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. There's it. been babies who have died from yeah, that. I mean, that's how most people get it though. They get it when they're a baby and somebody kiss them on the mouth. I don't understand why you want. Or they can get it as a, they can get it as a teenager and they drink from somebody with an active cold sore. Yeah. You kiss your lover who has an active cold sore and then you end up getting it. Well, the herpes simplex got so bad actually in the Roman empire that, uh, they had to that they ban kissing entirely. I don't know. That's just a little fun fact there. But uh, yeah, so uh, we're getting off track here. But um, my my point is like you've got people with different with with different transcription problems. You've got people with different viruses. They don't have any symptoms of Alzheimer's. Okay, and now. Alzheimer's, uh, there's like early onset Alzheimer's, but what's the youngest case of Alzheimer's you've ever seen? I think in the 40s, right? Yeah. I mean, so it's basically a disease for uh, the elderly. So if you start looking at other, if you start looking at the, uh, the gene cascades and the pathways that are connecting uh, amyloid beta and, and tau, and you've explored the literature that finds connections. Okay, the youngest is actually, I apologize, 27. Oh my gosh. That's that's kind of crazy. Um, there might be other conditions too. There might be like head trauma or something, you know. Um, but. And also remember Alzheimer's and Down syndrome both affect chromosome 21. And many patients, you know, with Down syndrome, if they live long enough, eventually develop Alzheimer's disease too. Hmm, I did not know that. Um. Okay, so um, you start you start looking at the genes surrounding um, amyloid beta and and tau, and you start to see um, with tau you start to see strong connections between some um, some 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 genes that are not expressed uh, as much as we age. For instance, uh, superoxide dimutase, um, collagen growth hormone, uh, insulin-like growth factor one, uh, the overexpression of interleukin-6, IL-6, and uh, TNF. So um, you, with tau, you get these like aging uh, hormone cascades or and, you know, just these genes that just don't express as much as, uh, as you do or some are expressed more as you get older. And then with amyloid beta, you see some genes that are associated with that. They're in the same cascade that have some cognitive function, right? Like BDNF, um, brain-derived uh, neurotropic factor, 
acetylcholine uh, interase. You know, these are um, these are some genes that are responsible for creating uh, neuroplasticity. Uh, acetylcholine is a very important neurotransmitter. But every single thing, which used to be one of the hypotheses for Alzheimer's disease, was the, was the acetylcholine, the cholerogenic hypothesis. Right. But if you look at a map, like if you just start mapping out these genes, these gene cascades, and you start mapping out, um, like what do they have in common? Where does the amyloid beta gene cascade intersect the tau protein uh, gene, genetic cascade? And uh, it seems to be APOE, as you mentioned earlier. That's the gene that's in common between the Specifically two. Specifically APO4. So, yeah, so that there's different variations of uh, the, the APO lipoprotein. And uh, basically what this protein does is it, it's, a, it's a receptor that allows uh, low-density lipoprotein uh, to, uh, li lipoproteins to connect and basically uh, dispense lipids to the area to be metabolized, right? So you have LDL and HDL. Well, LDL, it needs to connect to something. You know, uh, LDL is like a bus and it transports stuff. Uh, it transports um, triglycerides back to the liver. And so w with the different variations... Um, Transport cholesterol to the neurons in the brain. Right. Well, yeah. Well, yes. Um, and so we have these variations. We have um, um, basically there are three. There's what we call what we, we would typically call as the as the wild type or like what m most people have. And then we have in people, we call them um, polymorphisms, which are changes in the gene um, with uh, three different alleles. Um you know, uh, E2, E3, and E4. Now, E4 uh, has, uh, well, e, E2 and E4 seem to be really bad. E3 seems to be pretty good. And if you if you get your 23andMe thing done, um, you'll see, you, you can see which variation you have. I'm fortunate to have the uh, E3 variant, so, you know, I'm good to go, but E2 seems to be correlated with stuff like Parkinson's disease and um, arteriosclerosis. Same, same with yeah. E4. Yeah, yeah, uh, with yeah, that's right. And uh, hyperproteinemia, um, you know, which is like um, vascular disease. So that's that's not a good deal. And E4, there's no positive with E2. There is one positive with E4. Is E4 tends to have higher levels of vitamin D. Yeah, but yeah, people with E4 tend to have like um, uh, accelerated telomere shortening and sleep apnea, and you know, um, they tend to not recover as fast from brain injuries, um, reduce cognitive function. So if you've got E4, you know, there and, and again, like just because you've got faster disease faster disease progress of multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And I, I had a client once that had uh the E4 variant and and basically, you know, uh wanted some wanted some support there because she was just terrified, you know, she thought that was a death sentence or whatever. And, you know, it's it's really not. And there are a lot of things you can do um, you know, to help yourself out. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, it's just because you have the E4 variant doesn't mean you're going to get Alzheimer's. It just means that you have an increased risk, um, for that. And there are ways to decrease your risk even more than your, your, your genetics will indicate.
Is it because APO, one of the other things that it does is it helps to um, prolytic break down um, the amyloid protein? Well, And in doing so, people without variants tend to have a better mechanism of breaking down those pro- proteins properly? Um, that would fall under the APP hypothesis. I'm not sure. Like, I'm not really sure 100%. Well, beta amyloid peptide. Not- right. It would... It would uh, right, amyloid peptide beta. Uh, yeah, it would it would seem that that makes sense, but w- again, we don't know cause or effect. You know, maybe that's just an effect of Alzheimer's and not necessarily the cause. Um, what about the old hypothesis that the brain develops type three diabetes? I've heard that's been tied in with APO four too as well, because APO four also deals with g- glucose metabolism too. Yes. Well, that's also a so actually that's uh, one of the things that I didn't mention with uh, amyloid beta is that uh, it is amyloid beta is also associated with insulin production in the brain. Um, and so, yeah, there, when when amyloid beta is not functioning correctly, then, you know, the insulin production isn't functioning correctly. Um, and so, uh, yeah, because like it's a it's a membrane protein, right? So you're going to have less insulin in the brain. Um, and that's, that's not good. So, um, that, you know, and having insulin, you know, insulin by itself can be nootropic as well. I mean, you, um, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't recommend this, but you know, the people that are biohackers or whatever that are out there, um, trying to get a few more IQ points by engaging in risky behaviors. Um, there's a popular thing to do where they go to the drugstore and they can just buy insulin um, I don't think you need it. I don't think you need a prescription for it. I think you can just buy it, and they put it in uh, one of those uh, nasal spray machines, and they just uh, basically, uh, you know, like uh, you know, like those nasal saline sprays. Yeah, and and they just uh, spray it in their nose and inhale, and uh, they get a shot of insulin to the brain, um, and uh, then that's that makes them. Uh, that enhances their cognition. Again, don't recommend this. I've never done this before. I wouldn't ever do this, but it's something that some people do. Um, you know, the people that are like on, uh, I don't know, what's that uh, form like uh, longevity or whatever? Yeah, doing biohacking. It's just much safer stuff that you can do to get improved cognitive function than spraying uh, insulin into your nose. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. There's there's a guy, well, I don't, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. I just don't know. I'm not going to try it myself because it seems pretty risky, you know, messing with your hormones like that. Some people think it's pretty safe and they're doing it for a while. There's just no long-term studies yet. So I'm just going to let them do that for a while and see. And if it turns out to be totally safe, well, then I'll change my opinion. But right now, uh, I put it as a pretty high risk. um, So we do know that APOE, especially APOE2 and possibly APOE4, can lead to issues with can can lead to the development of diabetes and the worsening of diabetes symptoms like diabetic neuropathy. So there does seem to be a correlation with those too as well, and the correlation with Alzheimer's disease too, which used to be mm. uh, possibly uh, before the herpes veridae hypothesis, which I actually think is probably the most sound one and the one they're actually doing the most research into now. Um, it would appear that the previous one of type three diabetes again seems to be a consequence, not a cause. Well, you know, like correlation does not necessarily mean causation, right? 
so we just don't know. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, we, we just don't know yet. And until, you know, you can, you can have these, you know, you can, you can have research to where everything looks good. It's all laid out. And then all of a sudden you do an in vivo study, you know, a real life study, and it just doesn't play out the way you thought it would. And so not only do we have to see, um, you know, the correlation but we have to we have to find a mechanism you know we have to see it in action and that we don't have yet and so that's you know kind of what we have to that's kind of what we have to work out yeah we'll talk about later on things that possibly could be done as far as the prevention of alzheimer's disease and possibly maybe things that be, can can be done when a person actually has alzheimer's disease to slow the condition um, but there are things that possibility you can do to address all of these things for a better outcome. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and look, when it comes to scientific research, when it comes to drugs, supplements, um, whatever, there are people that tend to be more naturally skeptical and, uh, there are people that tend to be more, uh, accepting. Um, and so, you know, I tend to fall more on the skeptical side of the spectrum. Like I tend to want to see more evidence before I confirm it. Um, and then some people tend to be more optimistic about it. And they, you know, they say, oh, you know, we should be doing all this stuff. And this is usually people where you look in their medicine cabinets and they've got like five, $600 worth of supplements there. Um, and that's, that's great. Good for them. Um, but that's what makes the world go around. Uh, and, and for me, I'm, you know, I, I'm very wary of anybody who says, "Up, oh, we, you know, we we figured out, uh, you know, we figured out what causes Alzheimer's." You know, it's like, "Oh, you did, huh?" Um, and uh, I just I just want to wait and see, you know, more more data first before I hop on board with anything. I I somewhat disagree with that. I think the herpes veridae hypothesis is probably the most correct one, just through my study of the immune system and the study of majority of autoimmune conditions. Uh, being uh, pathogen related. And so when someone has Alzheimer's disease, you know, you could try these things or even prevention of Alzheimer's disease to try certain things. If you do have herpes simplex one, it's not going to hurt you in the long run. I mean, if anything, you don't want HSV one reactivation to be constantly occurring. Do you Jason? No, that's not going to be good. But uh, let me just, let me just mention this though. Do you know anybody or have there ever been cases of people who have had Alzheimer's disease that didn't have um, the herpes veridae's uh, virus? From what I've seen in the studies, it's been very, very, very low. Okay. So if you, let's say it's, um, let's say it's as high as 80% of people with Alzheimer's also have herpes simplex one. Uh, that would be probably correct, yes. So then w what about the other 20%? How did they get it? We don't – I mean that th that would be data I haven't seen. I, the, from what I've seen from the studies, pretty much everybody has it to some degree or has some sort of herpes veridae virus that may not necessarily be HSV-1. And because it's ubiquitous in nature, it seems mm. to be – it may not be just HSV-1 in and of itself. It could be the herpes veridae genius. Uh, genus that's causing it and so since it is you know mm. it could be epstein-barr it could be cytomegalovirus it could be um herpes simplex 2 it just seems to be one seems to be the one that's strongly correlated but it's like um ms ms seems to be strongly correlated with both 
um, the herpes veridae genus of viral uh, viruses as well as uh, H. pylori. Uh, so there could be other agents. I mean, there's been fungal agents who have been that could be co-infections that are that are implicated in Alzheimer's disease as well. But I still think the herpes simplex virus one hypothesis is the one of the most strongest. I mean. You see it in elderly brains where it's not really there so much in the brains of younger people. And that could be like exactly like you said, the immune system, you know, you have less cytokines, you have less defense, uh, therefore a more porous blood brain barrier. So therefore it tends to be able to uh, cross the blood brain barrier. There's been correlations between APOE. Uh, polymorphisms, especially APOE4, and the ability of uh, of HSV to cross the blood-brain barrier uh, more efficiently in people with those polymorphisms. There's been studies to show that too as well. Um, and also HSV uh, being uh, highly concentrated within uh, uh, amyloid plaque and tau plaque masses, um, which of course the hypothesis to that is, is the body uh, tries to produce um, more of those proteins to try to inhibit the herpes veridae from becoming reactivated. And in doing so, um, because of changes of epigenetics, it changes the way the proteins are folded and it starts becoming uh, a formation of plaques, which appears to be another uh, tie-in with all of that. Now, remember the aluminum hypothesis used to be another um, uh, hypothesis for Alzheimer's as well? Well, it just appears that the blood-brain yeah. barrier is more porous, like it is seen in viral infections. You know, if you're, if you're dealing with a viral infection, uh, when, when most of these herpes veridae viruses are reactivated, they go up the trigeminal nerve. That's been proven. I've had it happen to myself with re reactivation of um, varicella. Um, it, it can cause, it can go into the brain, um, and when that happens. Um, through, uh, it's, it, this thing is, is when most people think of brain infections of viruses, they think of rabies, which is very, um, it's very quick. It's a very chronic, you know, chronic disease of the brain where there are some brain, uh, dysbiosis changes, whether it's, um, toxic plasmosis gondii, which takes 10 to 20 years for it to start causing issues within the brain. It lies dormant for uh, a very long time. You know, children will get them, you know, they can even get it in, 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 um, um, in, in, when they're in their mother's womb. Um, and it doesn't affect if, if they don't are not aborted from that and it doesn't affect them until they're 25, if they have certain genes like a COMT polymorphism, um, and that's also why um, it's an infection may affect males more than females because females have a natural defense against T. gondii uh, where males do not, which why might, might be why there's way more male schizophrenics. Um, so it's the same with this. You know, the HSV, it either crosses the blood-brain barrier in someone because they're elderly and they have less defense to it through multiple reasons, you know, why. Um, lack of vitamin D, lack of sunlight exposure, uh, epigenetical changes due to age. I mean, there's many different reasons why that may be, or it could be that it happens earlier in life and it just lies dormant until the immune system cannot handle it anymore. And it starts causing, you know, localized, uh, dysbiosis and infections, the body combats, there's damage that's involved in, in, in from that and so on and so forth. So to me, the HSV one seems to be the most likely cause. Now you're correct. It may not be 10 years from now. We might not like, well, that it's just another, uh, it's just another symptom. It's not the cause, but a lot of data points to it being the cause. And if I had HSV one and APO four, you darn right. There's a few things that I would do to try to prevent me from getting Alzheimer's disease to combat both of those issues. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, if if you have, well, just like if you have uh, polymorphism, you know, like let's say you're a female who has a polymorphism with the, the BRCA gene, um, then yeah, you would probably want to uh, do something about that as well, right? Um, so, you know, just reducing your risk uh, would make a lot of sense. Um, you know, and you'd want to do everything you could to, to prevent that. Um, but it's not necessarily going to happen because you have that genetic variant. Yes. Um, so, you know, you just, you just got to play the odds a little bit better, I suppose, uh, because there's a lot of people that have APO4 that will never get Alzheimer's. Um, so there's people with HSV one that will never get Alzheimer's as right. well. But if you have the perfect storm, possibly of a depressed immune system, HSV one and APOE four, then yes, you do have a greater chance of developing St- Alzheimer's. Statistically, disease. yeah. At least per the at least per the research. Yeah. Well, stati- well the, the thing is, like, I'm not sure uh, statistically if we can p- apply it that way because, um, like. The, the, okay, so let's say like uh, 20% of the population has this and, and 30% of the population has that, but then they don't necessarily stack upon each other. So it's, if you have this, this, and this, you know, it doesn't necessarily increase your risk uh, that much more. It just uh, individually, statistically, yes, over a large population. Um, but when you're looking at people individually, you know, they may or may not have an issue. I don't know. You see what I'm trying to say? Um, I agree, but if I had APOE4 and had herpes simplex 1 at one time of my life or tested positive for high you know, IgG markers to herpes simplex 1, then I would definitely consider uh, working on both of those the best I could yeah. to prevent Alzheimer's disease. I would, I, you're, you're safer doing that than, than not doing it, in my opinion. Well, I mean, a lot of the things that, uh, that you should be doing to prevent Alzheimer's, you should be doing anyway. Um, you know, it's... Um, for for a lot of these things, you know, having good diet, good lifestyle, um, like it's it's uh, it's just something that you should be doing. Um, it's going to prevent all sorts of illnesses, not just Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's just happens to be uh, one of the scarier things you can that can have happen to you. Um, so you know, it gets it gets more attention as a result. But yeah, I mean, you just um, you just kind of have to be just kind of have to be careful. Um, or I guess you just kind of have to be smart about how you live your life. And one thing I just want to mention too, is there are antiviral studies with dementia and the elderly that have been done in the past couple of years. Um, and their dementia scores actually do improve uh, when they're on an- antivirals. Hmm. So, and again, that's another correlation that doesn't, you know, equal causation, but again, it's the same with apparently with COX-2 inhibitors since COX-2 in- inhibition uh, has anti-herpes uh, verite uh, uh, potential. Uh, people who are also taking NSAIDs, which, you know, in of ourselves we're not really a fan of, um, actually seem to also do better on mental cognition scores, especially people with dementia. Yeah, COX-2 inhibitors do a really good job of uh, reducing inflammation. Um, these are compounds, you know, like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, Tylenol, you know, um, that kind of stuff. But um, taking that's they're all also very hard on the gut. Tylenol is hard on the liver. Um, and 
it's not a good long-term solution for for inflammation management. Um, Curcumin is probably a better selective COX-2 inhibitor in my opinion. Sure. The the deal is with curcumin. Curcumin is is a compound found in the the root of uh, the turmeric plant and it's it's very good for inflammation reduction. The problem is it doesn't survive well in the gut. Um, stomach acid breaks it down at a pretty high rate. So um, they have a liposomal form of, of curcumin, uh, Minerva SR. Um, a lot of different supplement companies sell it, and um, it's a lot more expensive than your typical curcumin um, product, you know, products out there. But I think in that case, it's worth it um, to have... Uh, uh, phosphorylated um, product, you know, using um, like uh, you know, using a, a means of getting it through the, the the gut without having it break down. I think is really important. Um, otherwise, you know, you're kind of wasting money. I think. Um, but yeah, curcumin works well. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, good antioxidants. You know, ALA. Um, I think would would be uh, would be pretty good. As long as a person doesn't have any mercury amalgams in their mouth or mercury burden, but yes, it would. RLA would definitely help. Uh, as a very strong. You know, what about ubiquinol? PQQ has been shown to inhibit um, mm. herpes veridae within the brain. That's another. You know, PQQ is relatively harmless. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, it's found in diet. Um, I, I I don't see any problem with taking PQQ. I um, for you know I, I can't I can't think of a case where somebody wouldn't want to take it, um, other than it's expensive. Um, but yeah. So why don't we why don't we start talking about uh, one? I want to read one statement, one one quick statement, and then why don't we start talking about things that people can do for Alzheimer's prevention? Mm-hmm. Um, we covered pretty much all the known hypotheses, causes of it, right? Well, the the big ones, yeah, I would say. Um, I don't know. There, there are definitely others out there, um, and they might be right. Who knows? But uh, I think we covered the major ones. And aluminum does seem to be a, a side effect too, as well, of its accumulation in the plaques. Correct? Of a more porous blood-brain barrier. Well, so when okay, so if you look at SOD super uh, oxide dimutase, uh, and you look at the reduction of uh, the super oxide, uh, the super oxide. Okay, so. Uh, I could really get on a rabbit hole with go down a rabbit hole with this, but I, I completely disagree with the um, with what most people are, are thinking about with uh, with aluminum and Alzheimer's. I think um, what, what's basically happening is that when um, you start to suffer from Alzheimer's, that part of the brain becomes hypoxic, which means there's not enough oxygen in the area, um, and there is. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, basically um, uh, there, there's two different types of, of oxygen uh, O2. Okay, so there's the superoxide, which has uh, an extra. Well, it, it carries a negative charge because it has an extra electron. And then there's just dioxygen, which is like the stuff in the air that we breathe. Um, in either case, um, with uh, the lack of superoxide. You know, you, you, and probably the lack of oxygen too, because of decreased blood flow, you end up with a hypoxic environment. Now, what happens? You know, when you have a hypoxic environment. Now you're starting to talk about the mitochondrial theory of um, right of Alzheimer's being from poorly functional neural right. mitochondria, because our mitochondria produce superoxide 
you know, which greatly increases when there's issues with electron transport chain and leakage and, right. and oxidative stress. Um, having that extra electron with uh, super ox- uh, with a superoxide um, would seem like it would be an antioxidant, right? But it actually is. Turns out that it's a free radical. Um, and if you take uh, any pathogen, a very po- a very potent one at that. Yeah, um, and if if you take any um, pathogen and you remove its ability to, to create superoxide, it's no longer virulent. So it, it it's like completely inert. Um, it won't it can't harm you. So that's that's an interesting feature. Um, but uh, another thing is that um, if you um, you know, we have this uh, we have this uh, superoxide dimutase, which can take superoxide and convert it into hydrogen peroxide, so H two O two, which is uh, going to uh, reduce you know reduce that harm, but it can also go back and forth. But anyway, the the reason why um, you're seeing the the aluminum residue is because um, aluminum. Um, you know, when, when you have like, okay, let's say, okay, so my grandfather's a master welder and if he's welding with aluminum, you know, a lot of these sports cars and stuff now have aluminum chassis cause it's, it's so light, but it's really hard to work on because if you're trying to weld aluminum and there's oxygen in the air, um, it completely vaporizes cause you know, it binds to the oxygen it's gone. Um, so you have to get, you have to, um, you have to if we work, if you're working with aluminum, you have to work on an oxygen-free environment, which is kind of tricky because you know you got to breathe, um, and so uh, that's kind of what's going on in the brain. Um, people are you know they're not looking at live brains here. You know they're not like oh you have Alzheimer's can we dig into your head? So they've already died, and now we're looking at their brain, and we have hypoxic areas of the brain where the Alzheimer's seems to be taking hold, and we look in that area, and it's like oh there's all this aluminum there. Well of course there's aluminum there because there's no oxygen, and that's just where it's deposited, right? So um, that's why I think the aluminum hypothesis is, you know, are, are just ba- basically even considering aluminum at all is just basically an, another way of saying that the area is hypoxic and uh, there's nothing really more that you should glean from that. Which can also be, you know, produced from oxidative stress of the mitochondria through failing of the electron transport chain through either production of reactive oxidative ox- React reactive oxygen species, which is ROS, like you mentioned earlier, or react reaction nitrogen species, which are even more potent than superoxide. Um, yeah, but yes, uh, it, it, that would lead to inflammation and cellular death and, and mitochondrial, you know, death within the brain, which would cause you know many symptoms of Alzheimer's disease right. and cognitive decline. Right, for sure, and you know, a reduction in uh, the expression of other. Um, genes, you know, like it takes energy to, um, it takes energy to fold and unfold proteins. It takes energy to, you know, to uh, bind certain compounds together with enzymes and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, if you don't have a lot of AP, ATP production, then you know, it's probably not going to work out for you. Um, but yeah, I still, you know, I still think that the aluminum. You, know, you can go into all this biochemistry and physiology of the brain and basically however you spin it, it's like, why is the aluminum there? It's there because there's no oxygen, period. Um, and you can you can keep going down that hole, but it all leads to the same answer, which is there's no there's no oxygen here. And that's why there's aluminum. Um, so, yeah. 
that's uh, that's that's pretty much all I got to say about about that. Yeah, and also when you have low, I think if you have lower levels of amyloid beta that's properly uh, you know laid flat within the brain, mm. um, you end up with. If I remember correctly, you end up with almost hypoxia, like you mentioned earlier, and also issues with um, mitochondrial function as far as redox potential and, and, and calcium homeostasis, uh, which will cause uh, you know issues with um, with um, uh, the mitochondria within the brain. Because, like you said, I, the the th- curious thing about um, amyloid beta is that it does appear to be neurotrophic. Uh, well, when you're when you when neurotrophic, when you have higher levels, but when you have lower incomplete levels, it tends to cause issues with the brain in and of itself. So, well, it's related to these neurotropic growth factors, uh, NGF. Um, but uh, so normal, normal, proper pro- produced levels that aren't folded or neuro- or would be neurotropic and in improper. Folded proteins would be and would be more and lower levels would be more neurotrophic uh, in that it would hurt the brain, right? Well, when you're looking at any genetic cascade, you got to look at it as a system, okay, and not just point to one thing and say, "Well, this is the problem. This is the bad guy right here," because clearly there's a lot of other things going on. So we start to see some associations, but you know, maybe it's the uh, amyloid beta is. Um, is causing problems because you're secreting less um, uh, neurogrowth factor, and, and let's and uh, well, you know, as we get older, we produce less and less of that, so that would make sense. You know, we we age and we don't express as much of some of these um, some of these compounds, and you know, and then all of a sudden we have cognitive dysfunction. So I don't know. Um, and and one last thing, Jason, and we'll move on, is amyloid beta does have an antimicrobial activity against herpes simplex 1. The um, – it, yes, it it does in its um, – in its traditional beta sheet. Um, but – Yes, it would. Yeah. But uh, the abnormal production, proliferation, conjugation of um, – of the amyloid beta, um, you know, it, it does not have the same effect for sure. So that, that also may be, you know, you might be seeing that and then you see the proliferation of, of, uh, you know, you do your PCR and you see your proliferation of, of herpes simplex RNA and you're like, wow, there's just, just a lot of herpes RNA in this brain. Maybe it's because the, Amyloid beta failed first. You know, you never know. It, you know, it's it might not be the the virus that happened first. You know, that, that was the cause. It might be the protein that broke down, and might and then why did the protein break down? So that you just got to backtrack and figure out what exactly is going on. And, and in my opinion, we're just not there yet. Um, like we've got some good ideas and we've got some some leads, but uh, we don't have a complete picture, um, in my opinion, of exactly what's going on and and really how to solve it. Um, but, uh, so what are, what are our recommendations for someone who has APOE4 or has herpes simplex one or has Alzheimer's disease that runs in their family? What, what could be done? Uh, if they have Alzheimer's disease that runs in their family, I don't consider that to be a risk. Um, if they have, uh, you know, some of the risk factors, 
Well, let's let's look at the big stuff first. Okay, so let's just look at lifestyle. Um, You need to be getting good sleep. Okay, Um, a lot of these hormones that are produced that seem to be lacking in people with uh, Alzheimer's disease, they're produced while you're sleeping, like growth factor, um, you know, and some like growth hormone, um, some of the, um, uh, you know, Actually, like while you while you're sleeping, this is an interesting thing. While you're sleeping, your brain actually swells up a little bit, and um, it it fill you know there's a little extra water that gets into your brain, and it, you know your brain swells while you're sleeping. It kind of does that to help clean stuff out and help uh, good nutrients come in. And it only takes place while you're sleeping. It's not happening while you're awake. So make sure that you get good sleep. You have a good circadian rhythm so that you're you know, your hormones are in good shape because, you know, there's some association there between, um, hormone expression and, um, cognitive decline. Um, and then, you know, you, you also want to make sure that uh, you're getting good exercise. Okay. You're, you're physically active because again, you know, it's, if you're not physically active, then you underexpress certain hormones that also lead to cognitive decline. Um, primarily the function of the, the nervous system isn't, you know, um, isn't for cognition, you know, it's not to like, uh, think up good ideas and remember things and all that stuff. The primary responsibility of the nervous system is to control, mo- uh, motion you know the cns does a, you know a lot of movement some voluntary functions and voluntary functions you know the ans cns all that kind of good stuff um but um you know you need to move you need to get out there and you need to move and you need to you know you need to have some kind of physical activity um resistance training uh, seems to have a, a very positive effect on hormone expression so if you can if you're able to do any kind of um, resistance training, um, get into the get into a gym. Um, make sure that you have a coach that's showing you how to do the movements correctly, so that you don't hurt yourself. Um, and make sure you have a good coach that actually knows what they're doing, um, and they're not putting you on some kind of crazy thing that's gonna that's gonna hurt you. Um, and that you can kind of ease into it. And because when you're first starting off, you don't need to go crazy. You know, you just need enough to, uh, to get going. And then as you progress, you know, you can kind of up, you know, up the volume a little bit. Um, but yeah, so sleep, physical activity, diet is a key, you know, uh, um, and especially with, with, uh, fatty acids, it seems to be that, um, you know, you need to be make, making sure that you have good saturated, good sources of saturated fat, um, grass fed meats, grass fed butter. Sure. Or just, you know, just butyric acids, uh, very important in my opinion. A lot of that's made in the gut too. So you need a lot of uh, leafy greens and you need a lot of stuff because the, actually the majority of the butyric acid that we're getting is actually made in the gut. So make sure that you've got, right. Yes. Yeah, so make sure you got good gut function. To feed the colonocytes. Um, but now that help prevent against leaky gut. Um, but yeah, but diet, you want to make sure that you're getting a good amount of omega-3 fatty acid ingestion too through proper uh, seafood. And I got a blog on uh, that I'll link in the show notes on about omega-3s, which also proper omega-3 ingestion reduces inflammation, improves cognitive function as well. For, for sure. Omega-3 is important. Um, you know, get, eat, eat seafood, fish, whatever. If you're vegetarian, vegan, um, there are good algae sources of omega-3s. Um, that, that you can use um, that didn't exist, you know, 
a while back. You know, it's it's a relatively new thing. So if you're on a plant-based diet, it's easier than ever to, to get your omega-3s. Um, and, uh, you know, just make sure you, you supplement with that appropriately uh, because, you know, you really need that in the brain. Um, uh, what about you know, uh, proper sunlight exposure uh, for circadian yeah, rhythm and reduced inflammation right. as well as in, 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 um, to improve vitamin D production? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, like I passed by, uh, you know, I passed by this poster the other day that says like, don't go out in the sun. Um, you know, you get enough vitamin D from your breakfast cereal in the morning. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> and depending on polymorphisms of VDR, ingestion of vitamin D may not convert as well or may not be stored properly within the liver. So, Well, yeah. I mean, you're getting from breakfast cereals, you're probably getting the D2 variant of kefsterol. Um, but the only way to get sulfonated um, hydroxycafesterol is through sunlight exposure. Um, that's the only way to get it. So you can have s- stores of vitamin D, but to make it active, you do need some ultraviolet radiation to your skin. And it's not even really that your skin is doing it. It's the um, it's the microorganisms, the microorganisms that live on your skin, you know, the, the, uh, the yeast and so forth that live on your skin that's uh, taking care of this for you. So that's why you need to go out in the sun. Um, and, and get that exposure um, so that the, uh, you know, the, the yeast on your skin can, can help convert that to a bioavailable form. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's very important. Um, blocking, blocking blue light at night. Um, maybe if you're working in an office under fluorescent lighting, you might want to wear some blue light blocking glasses. Yeah. All that's also going to have effect on cognitive function and the health of your mitochondria as well. And of course, something me and Jason may disagree on is non-native EMF exposure too, as well. Like you don't want to live right next to a cell phone tower <laughs> and you want to try to limit as much as your non-native EMF exposure as you can. And you can't, you know, not everyone's going to be able to do the things that Jack Cruz recommends, you know, but there are certain things you can do, like turn your Bluetooth off your phone when you're not using it or your mobile data when you're not using it and, and, and you know, use hardwire instead of Wi-Fi when all possible within your house or at least turn off your Wi-Fi at night. Stuff like that may, may also help too as well. Reduce any mitochondrial oxidative stress or weakening your immune system to allow the herpes veridae, if the hypothesis is correct, to reactivate. Yeah, that dude cracks me up. He's like, all right, don't be around any radio waves, any and blue light and he works as a surgeon in a hospital right so like surgeons are under like the brightest lights you can buy <laughs> and he's working in a hospital where they have wi-fi out the out, out your ears now jason he has the redox potential to be able to oh, do that so, so. <laughs> well it's just a little hypocritical um it's like, hey, you've got to stay away from this. Go move to the- that. That is that is one of my main concerns about the cult of Cruz, as they say, is for him to be like, you need to go live like in the jungles yeah. of the Amazon. <laughs> and he, nothing but seafood. And and if you can't do that, then you're uh, you're going to die. Yeah. Like I'm like, <laughs> look, there's things that we can all do to live in this modern world that we live in some more than others, depending on how. Uh, weak they are to non-native EMF and how, how, how but none, still nonetheless, 
you know, I, I'm not saying that you should, you know, everything in your house should be smart broadcasting signals all the time and you should live next to a cell phone tower because that's going to have some negative implications on a person's health. Maybe. Um, there's really not a lot of proof, but we'll see. I mean, as I the, digress, I, I disagree research, with you on that. The, the research develops, we'll see. Um, you know, um, there's a lot of electromagnetic signaling that happens in your body. Um, you know, every time your heart beats, you, pr- you produce an electromagnetic field. Um, and so I think that, you know, just having your heart. Yes, but that is well different than having a 4G cell phone next to your testicles when you walk, when there have been many studies have shown of decreased sperm counts in vivo within humans. It, from yeah, but that could just be, phones. that could just be heat as well. Um, that is a possibility too, but still, the, uh, but still, nonetheless, though. Essentially, when you look at the ener- an energy system, there, you know, there's a lot of attenuation that goes on. So, you, you know, you look at, at, um, you know, you look at electrons and the way they function. You know, it's 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 not just all, uh, not all of it is absorbed, right? So, um, the stuff that isn't used as energy, a lot of times, is given off as heat, and and so it heats up that general area, and then you know it's going to lead to lower sperm count doesn't necessarily mean that the radio waves are literally going and, you know, killing the, the sperm cells. Um, but again, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see who's right in the end. So pretty much you're telling me that you are a shill paid off by IG, AG pal in the FCC. That's what you're telling me, Jason. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll go off on a tangent here since we're getting towards the end of the show. Um, I am concerned about 5g and, um, these 5G systems are coming out, I think, in six cities um, or something. I don't They're already know. out. They're already out. Okay. And I am concerned about the 5G, and there's something that uh, people don't understand, is that the systems that we use to detect, um, you know, to do our weather tracking, hurricane tracking, is very close, uh, like, um, to infrared and 5G. And so I predict that there's going to be interference between our technologies to um, track hurricanes and get our early warning detection from hurricanes and the implementation of 5G. And like, look, I don't know, like I love technology, you know, I've got a lot of gadgets and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, I've always got the newest phone and, you know, the newest thing and whatever. But like 4G is for me when I'm out and about and I'm not on Wi-Fi, 4G is pretty fast. I mean, it's fast enough for what I'm doing when I'm not on Wi-Fi. Do you really need – like how fast do you really need to be? Um, need that virtual reality. need to be able to stream stream live 4K to your phone. Get it in your retinas. Yeah, get in – like when you're just like out and about, like do that when you're on a Wi-Fi connection. You don't need that 24-7, you know? And so we might be um, shortchanging some people that aren't getting their early warning uh, for, you know, like, oh, a hurricane's coming um, because somebody wants, you know, 4K instead of 1080p. You know, they just want a little high resolution YouTube video when they're watching it on the train or something like that. It's like, okay, how many phones are even displaying in, in 4K right now anyway? Um, you know, 1080p on a phone screen is probably going to be good enough for you. Uh, for video, uh, you could probably not even tell the difference between the two. Anyway, um, that's what I'm concerned about is more real world practical things and not these hypothetical stuff that no one has proven and, you know, just kind of 
preaches on about you know an item and uh so we learned we learned today folks if you're listening to the podcast that jason is is, is pro uh, bill melinda gates in the new world orders agenda as well as pro fcc that uh non-native emf is safe you've heard it here for first folks uh, uh, as alex jones would say but anyway nonetheless um what about if someone has apo e4 4 uh apo polymorphism what what can they do okay so you're gonna need probably a higher fat diet in my opinion um if you have that genotype healthy healthy fats you know you don't want to guzzle canola and so soybean oil no uh you don't but uh you know you're gonna want to uh and and it's also um the e4 variant is like late onset sporadic alzheimer's disease so um you know we're talking about way late in life and with that particular isoform. So, um, I thought APOE4 lowers the late age of onset. No, 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 no. It, it's uh, the largest known genetic risk factor for late onset sporadic Alzheimer's disease. Okay. Um, I. But, but anyway, um, they tend to have lower cholesterol levels, people with APOE4, because they don't have the right um, lipid packets, uh, transports, um, or rather the receptors, not the transports. Uh, but uh, they um, and they tend to have higher buildup of the peptide beta amyloid. Um, so I don't know. Like you, you, you need to go into your genetic data also, and you need to look at both of your alleles because you have two copies of each gene. And so the total population, I think, is like maybe 12% of people have the E4 variant. Well, a lot of these people only have have it on one gene and they might have a save on the other gene. And that's like 50 to 60% of people. So they're good to go um, if, if you've got that. But if you've got both alleles uh, that have the E4 variant, um, then it might increase your risk between, you know, probably like 10 to 30 times um, by the time you hit 75 of uh, reaching Alzheimer's disease. So um, yeah, again, since your cholesterol levels are lower, you need to definitely um, have more fat in your diet. I think uh, you also need more exercise. You know, you need to be consuming probably more calories um, and, and just trying to raise your metabolism a little bit uh, as much as possible. Um, and then all the other things would, would apply to, you know, with sleep and diet and circadian rhythm and all that good stuff. So one, one last thing too, um, is there has been an implication of, uh, seroplasm and ferritin transportation issues of, you know, seroplasm being the copper transporting protein and ferritin being the iron transporting protein in people with Alzheimer's disease as well. Um, that's been implicated. So you might want to look in the, the work of Morley Robbins. Uh, for mineral rebalancing as far as that is concerned. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just gonna say that uh, I don't I don't believe that. I th- these like I don't think I don't I don't think it's a cause. I think it's I think it's a symptom. I think it's a, uh, a big marketing thing, you know, because they get you to do these like um, what do they call it? these these like hair mineral tests and all these things that are just totally bunk and they'll send you down. Uh, you know, a huge rabbit hole of, you know, they're basically selling you all these tests and like, oh, we need to do this and we need to do that. And- okay, then, Jason, I have an N equals one for hair testing because I used to think it was bunk too. Do you want to hear my story? Uh, okay, we'll, we'll hear your anecdote. 
years ago, um, I had a friend of mine who purchased two hair metal analysis tests for me. Um, and, um, and he, and I was, and I, so I, I, I cut my hair in two different locations. I melded it from two different locations to to use two different names. I used, um, two different, um, answered the questionnaires both differently. Okay. And they both came back almost identical one another with the results. I had elevated copper, I uh, elevated copper, I'm sorry, elevated nickel because I had a partial stainless steel retainer still in my mouth and I used a lot of stainless steel cookware, which that would have made sense, as well as low vitamin B12 and low lithium, which were both uh, correlational to the H. pluri dysbiosis that you had told me at that time that I had, but still not believe that I had it during that time period. And so explain that. Well, I don't, I don't disagree that you're not going to get the same result with the same test. My, um, my idea is that the results that you're getting from all of the tests are inaccurate or they don't paint uh, an accurate picture of the uh, minerals and micronutrients in your body. Uh, the same thing, I think, with the saliva tests and a lot of this other garbage that you know people will be happy to charge you, you know, six hundred dollars a test for or whatever, and make you do it. You know, I don't know, up to twenty different tests. That's a lot of money coming in for something that's not as accurate as like a micro, micronutrient blood test or something that you'd get through like a spectrocell or whatever. I understand as far as nutrients, I, th I do like spectrocell, don't get me wrong, as far as I do, as far as mineral com composition, spectrocell is better than hair mineral. But I think for toxic metals, hair mineral is better in blood, at least in my opinion, you and I can disagree on that. Um, I've seen it time and time again be correct in people who have had mercury amalgams and their mercury excretion through their hair be quite high. Um, but it's the same with, uh, when you're talking about the saliva tests and hormones, there are many studies of, uh, salivary cortisol levels being more accurate in Japan than blood cortisol levels and determination of adrenal issues and HPA TG access, uh, access issues as well. So, um, I do think it, it is necessary, but there are a lot of TAMs out scam testing out there that are scams like blood live blood cell analysis and, and kinesiology and stuff like that so how do you know which test is more accurate if you've got a blood test saying this and you've got a hair test saying this how do you know which one is accurate well as far as we talk about as far as like mercury within the blood and mercury being ex expressed in the hair or any test any test how do you know the efficacy of a test or I guess the accuracy of a test, rather, not the efficacy. The accuracy of a test, how do you know if one test is more accurate than another? That's impossible to gauge on any test. Well, that's let's a say that's, no, 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 no. That's that, a problem with uh, SIBO testing currently, with breath testing and gingival aspiration, which is considered the gold standard that has even issues, or any any testing has flaws, Jason. Okay. Well, let's, let's uh, consider this for a second. Let's say um, I bought some uh, cooking thermometers, right? Because I'm going to do some, uh, I'm getting into, uh, what are those people that like make chocolates and stuff, you know? There's more variance between the two differences of a cooking thermometer to go ahead and interrupt you. There are way more variance involved with testing than just the temperature in and of itself and the accuracy of a scientific device. Well, I'm just using, uh, I'm just using this as an example. Too simplistic. I, I go on to I go on to Amazon and I buy three different thermometers. I buy one of those infrared guns, you know, that can measure the surface level. 
Um, I buy uh, one of those induction thermometers where I just stick it into the thing. And then um, I buy a uh, one of those uh, wireless things, you know, one of those wireless um, thermometers. And all three thermometers are giving me a different readout of how hot the chocolate is. And I got to be very specific with this temperature because it's got to be, it's got to cool down to a certain thing, you know, in order to um, create that hardened shell and that glossy look, you know, um, that all the high-end chocolate companies or the chocolate makers uh, use. And so I got to be really specific with the temperature. So how do I know which one's right? You don't. Well, you look at the result, right? And so you say, well, which one am I getting the best chocolate with out of these three thermometers? Because all of them are going to have a margin margin of error. Yeah, I agree with you on Mm -hmm. that. So I've seen hair testing for heavy metal analysis be correct way more often than I've seen it not be correct. As opposed to blood blood testing? As opposed to blood, yes. Once a person starts mercury chelation, even though their blood is low but their hair is high and they have all the mercury amalgams taken out and they start seeing uh, good results using the Andrew Cutler protocol of DMSA first for three months and then ALA afterwards, I've seen remarkable improvements of people who didn't think they were mercury toxic because their blood uh, test results were normal or within range. Okay. Well, I mean, if it's working for them, that's great. Um, I would say in general, though, in um, in medicine, when you do a blood test, you're getting like a snapshot of exactly what's happening right now. Well, it depends. Are we talking serum? Are we talking RBC? Some people have higher, uh, have uh, a greater amount of RBC turnover, which means that RBC will even show false amounts sometimes. Like, what are we talking about here, man? <laughs> like, you're comparing apples to oranges. All tests have flaws. You just have to look at the person as a whole and determine whether or not the test results are applicable to them or not. And conventional medicine has a horrible track record of doing that. For example, if you have a person where all their thyroid markers look in range, but they show all the symptoms of subclinical hypothyroidism, then what would you rather do? Try to tackle the subclinical hypothyroidism to say that, to see if they improve or just leave it alone and then continue to suffer with subclinical hypothyroidism? Because conventional medicine is way more often going to do something like that, Jason. It's because everything looks on paper and the accepted ranges and the accepted value. Well, with a lot of thyroid testing, though, they're only really looking at um, T3, T4. They're not looking at the RT3s. There's like a lot of different um, thyroid things. And if you look at the big picture, uh, if you look at everything, you should be able to get enough data to see what's going on. Um, What you don't want to do is take somebody who's you know, maybe they're having a lot of the same symptoms, but maybe they have something else going on instead. And you start giving them thyroid hormone because maybe that's, it could be bad for their heart. It increases like heart up. Of course, but you can start giving, you can start giving them iodine with selenium. Mm. And most of the time that seems to work a lot better. Well, that's definitely a lot safer than just giving them, you know, thyroid shield or whatever. Um, But, uh, you know, the point I was trying to make is that different tests show you different things. So a hair follicle test is going to show you more of a long-term uh, pattern. And a blood test is going to show you more of a snapshot of what's going on right now. So if I go into the doctor's office and you know it's like, oh, I hate the doctor. I hate going in there. I hate being poked with a needle. Well, your cholesterol is probably going to be a little higher because you're going to be a little stressed out. Yes. Okay. So every time you go in to get your blood drawn, oh, your cholesterol is a little high. 
well, that may not be high. It just maybe, you know, you, you're a little stressed out because you couldn't eat breakfast that morning and, you know, you had to go into the doctor, you had to fast and all this other stuff. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's what your cholesterol values are going to be like on a day to day. So I think there are some advantages to doing the, the blood work over the over the hair follicle tests, um, I think the hair follicle test tends to show you like, well, this might have been what's going on for the last month. And the uh, blood the blood tests are going to be like, well, this is what's going on th- th- this very second of today. Um, and so, again, you know, the, the proof is in um, is going to be in, in the treatment protocol for that specific patient, that specific thing, like which treatment tends to go off. Now, my argument is that when companies are using hair follicle tests, since it's over a period of a month, they're going to end up with more positive data um, because it's a long-term thing. And so, like, if you had a couple days where, yeah, your nickel was a little higher, you had this a little higher, they're going to be able to sell you more, sell more packages that way, which is why they use that. Uh, it's also... Uh, when a lot of these people are doing this over the mail and uh, there are regulations involving transporting blood and stuff like that, whereas there's none with hair. So they tend to use that. So I think a lot of that, in my opinion, is, is marketing with uh, the saliva stuff and the, the hair stuff. They do have male blood spot testing. Yeah, they do, but it's bunk. Um, and actually, that's one thing. I, I spent a lot of money on this uh, on this thing. You know, they, they had this huge uh, – who was that uh, – that, that gal in Silicon Valley who raised tons of money. I mean, she went, she was like a billionaire. Um, and then it turned out that all of her uh, research that she was doing was completely bunk, but she was doing like a mass spec on blood drop stuff where it's like, oh, we can get your, you don't have to take an entire vial of blood anymore. You can just take a little prick and do this thing. Her, what was her name? Like Heather Hine or something like that. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? Does this ring a bell? I know who you're talking about, but I can't replace them. Yeah, uh, I can't. I can't remember her name either. Um, we'll we'll, we'll uh, look her up and put her in the show notes. But anyway, like um, before she was even doing that, um, I invested in a in a company that was supposed to be doing this, and they they had this whole racket and this presentation of like, yeah, we're doing this blood spot test, and you prick your finger and you put it on the card, and, and John, I, I I lost, you know, I I lost my shirt in that, you know, I. Uh, I will never see a dime of that money that I invested ever again. Um, and it just looked really good on paper. And they they claimed that they had good equipment. And then they just kept like all of their company newsletters kept coming out and saying like, oh, our stuff works. Trust us. But uh, the poor having just a problem with the FDA, getting it cleared to the FDA. And so I sent them a thing and I was like, hey, why don't you do this in another country where they don't have those restrictions and do it over email? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're looking into that. And like, don't look into it. Just do it. Just set up an office in like, I don't know, someplace where they don't have as high a regulation and just do it that way. And, uh, you know, and just email people the results. It's completely international, you know, whatever. And they're like, yeah, uh, well, well, yeah, we're, we're, we'll definitely do that. And after like a few years of this, it was obvious that it's a, it was a scam. And eventually we just stopped getting emails and they were gone. Um, and so this. I'm sorry, Jason. Well, no, I mean, it, it happens, you know, I mean, if. You, you invest in stuff, you know, a lot of, most of the time I would say it turns out that it's not going to pan out. So don't invest if you don't have money to lose. Uh, but you know, like the, the point I'm trying to make is that, that blood spot testing is not really a thing. Uh, so don't waste your money on it. Uh, cause there's a lot of scammers out there. Uh, it's been documented now that there are people doing it and it's, it's a complete scam. So anyway, um, 
this has been a long podcast. I think we should probably end it here on, uh, on that note. Um, be careful. Don't get scammed. Uh, do the big things first, guys. Um, get your, get your sleep, get your exercise, um, good diet, you know, make sure your, your gut's functioning properly. Get sun. Yeah. Get, yeah, for sure. Um, manage your stress, you know, uh, that those are the big things. Those, and and those are also the things that most people don't do and they don't want to do. They want something, they want a pill to take. They want a pill. They want some quick thing. And it's like, you know what? Yeah. It might sound daunting to some people. It's like, Oh, I got to start doing all this stuff differently. Yeah. But it's not really that bad. It's not really that bad to eat more salads. It's not really that bad to go to bed on time. Um, you know, to wake up on time. It's not really that bad to go to the gym every once in a while. I mean, it's not really that bad to get sun, you know, when you can, when the weather's permitting, you know, I'm not saying hours and hours and hours in the sun, but right. You know, getting any is better than nothing. So one of the things that we offer with fix your gut is coaching services. And, um, our coaching services are not a replacement for a doctor's visit. They're not a replacement for standard medical treatment. But one of the things that we're able to do is we work with people on solutions on how to get these, you, you know, your your life in the right shape where you can exercise and eat right and sleep. And, you know, and a big thing with, with coaching is just being able to provide that accountability to where we make sure you're doing what you're supposed to. Um, and if you're not on the next coaching call, um, you know, we're going to talk about what went wrong and all this other stuff. So, um, you know, you don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to do it all by yourself. Um, get a coach. It doesn't have to be John or I, it could be somebody else. Um, you, you know, you could have one of your friends coach you or whatever, and you know, just pick it, but it makes it so much easier if you've got somebody, you know, and if you got an issue, uh, and you need to make, um, some lifestyle changes, if you've got a coach and you got somebody working with you. So, um, you know, check out our webpage if you'd like to hire John or I to help you out. Otherwise, um, you know, there's a lot of other people out there that can, that can pretty much do the same thing. So hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, and, uh, we look forward to, to putting another one out soon. Take care, everybody.